Charting a course for sustainable space, this is Space to Grow, an Astro Scale and Market Scale podcast with your hosts, Chris Blackerby and Charity Whedon. First of all, welcome and thank you for joining us. Uh, you know, we're, we're, a, we're a podcast that's focused on economics and space and policy and uh, you have been a, a guest in our in our sites for a long time because of that. So, so thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Delighted to be here. And those are certainly some of my favorite topics. Yeah. Yeah. That's why we're excited yeah. for the conversation. So um, do you remember when we met? That's a weird way to start the conversation, but I actually remember when you and I met first time. So I'm, I'm wondering if we met before space symposium 2019. I think we did. Cause I think it was in Tokyo at a Japanese restaurant set up, by a ministry official here out on the sidelines of the SSA conference. Absolutely. And, now and, I do remember and we that. we had lunch. Exactly. I think it would have been, Kevin, like 2018, maybe spring That's right. time or so. Uh, and uh, so I, because wh when did you start uh, at Commerce? July of 2018. So it was later that it was in the fall or even I think it was October of that year. I remember that lunch vividly because I believe it was a 17 course lunch that was guaranteed to end in one precise hour. And I remember going in thinking, there's not a chance this is going to happen. And lo and behold, we were back at this at the facility within one hour. It was really Japanese quite amazing and efficiency. quite pleasant. Japanese efficiency, Absolutely. Kevin. Uh, but it was, it was like a long lunch. I remember you, you Nobu and I sitting across the table from you and um, I had just left the government myself only a year or so prior. Uh, after being with NASA. And I remember during that lunch uh, talking to you and thinking this is a, a unique person that's talking so much about the the economic aspects and the, the startup aspects and how we can bring all those together to make this international cooperation work and to drive the, the space economy. So you, 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 you did bring this unique perspective. And I, I want to start by saying, was that something you always have been thinking about? Or how, how, did, how did you evolve to, to this part of your career. So a little bit of your background as you kind of came up and, and what brought you to be thinking about it in the way that you do. Sure. So, so I had spent, uh, you know, roughly a third of my, of my career in, in the government, mostly in the national security arena. I'd been on the Bush 41 white house. Uh, I'd been on the vice president's staff. Uh, I'd worked on the director's staff at CIA. And, and frankly, this is in the mid '90s. That's where I got interested in space commercialization. We were doing the first days of uh, what was the Corona declassification, and then uh, the director said, "I'm going to do this thing called imagery commercialization. Can you help me with it?" And uh, my life was never the same, you know, since that time, because uh, the constant through my entire career up until now, as we worked on, you know, issues related to regulation of remote sensing, issues related to the security associated with it. And that's that's a complex conversation. And of course, I testified in 2016 before House Science. Uh, and then again, at the Second Space Council meeting, what I didn't know is that was actually a job interview in disguise. Uh, the topic was uh, regulation of, of remote sensing. So uh, it was interesting because when I met uh, met the secretary in February of 2018, uh, I was running my own company at the time. And, uh, you know, the first thing he said to me is, Kevin, why is the Commerce Department involved in space activities? And I'd actually thought about it for a long time. I'd been uh, involved with, uh, again, the NEMA Commission, if people are old enough to remember that construct that's the predecessor to NGA. I'd been part of uh, NOAA's Federal Advisory Committee for a dozen years and the chairman for four. 
So I'd actually given some thought to it and, and the economic aspects in that particular light of, of remote sensing. Uh, and so we had a lengthy conversation that day uh, and he, he offered me the job at the end of the discussion, actually. And so uh, I was noncommittal at that point because I had to talk to my wife about it and, you know, see if I could do something with my company. But uh, um, the rest was history, actually. So I uh, always thought a lot about the economic aspects and because uh, they're not the same. It's not the way, especially in the imagery business, it's not the way you'd think about this historically. It's a very different way of thinking about it. Kevin, you have told us about your extensive government kind of experience and i'm gonna we're, we're friends right we can talk um yeah. <laughs> one does not associate progressive regulation and the encouragement of commercial services for government use um while they're in government like was there a transition of thinking you had from those positions in government to your private business of I think the, I'm thinking of the era of remote sensing going from, uh, you know, we have to have shutter control and we we won't buy imagery for goodness sakes. We have our own imagery to yes, you can you can purchase imagery. It's it's available. We can regulate this uh, and have the economy, the remote sensing economy grow. What was that transition in thought over those years? Well, so I guess it really, Charity, was was the extent to which I could see how much regulation affected either encouraging companies forward or impeding them in the market. And I saw that for, for many, many years. And you have both explicit regulation, sort of words on paper, and then you have tacit regulation where things are done, you know, that are, that are not quite codified in law or, or specific policy or things like that. And so, uh, again, when I spoke at the second Space Council meeting, it was on regulation of commercial remote sensing uh, and how it could either be a lever to encourage innovation or hold it back. Uh, and, and so uh, I'm not sure where the precise uh, transition took place, but uh, certainly in the years that I was on the Federal Advisory Committee for, for NOAA, uh, we saw lots of folks come in and express concern about this kind of regulation or that kind of regulation. Uh, we built that into the regulation that we published in May of 2020. You know, we put this availability criteria and that uh, that we hoped would be a, a, a sort of a, a way to fuel American innovation as opposed to be used as a break. So really, really important. And the, the point, I'm not sure we want to talk about regulation for the whole time here, but the thing about regulation, it was very much impressed upon me. Uh, you know, we had our foot on the gas for certainly all the time I was at Commerce uh, but certainly the rest of the administration for trying to make sure that regulations were modernized uh, to keep up with a rapidly growing space industry, both the technology and the business areas. And if you don't keep them modernized, uh, and so you really run the risk of either harming an industry or, frankly, forcing them overseas to a more permissive business environment. And so uh, I think it's, you know, it's it's a complex topic. It can be a dry topic at times, but it's a very important piece of how you fuel the space economy or slow it down. We will talk about regulation the whole time. We can just dive deep on regulation. Excellent. You know me, bad. I always bring it back to regulation. That's always, <laughs> yeah. that's always what it's about. <laughs> but 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 we won't, I guess. Um, so, you know, what, did, your, did your thinking then on, on how all this is going to work regulatorily, commercial uh, incentivizing, did it change much? Like if I talked to Kevin O'Connell in 2016, uh, prior, 2017, prior to him taking this job 
at Commerce and I talk to you now, is it going to be a different answer we get on what it's going to take to incentivize uh, and, and drive commercial space? Uh, I don't think it'd be different from 2016. I think you can go back to my congressional testimony uh, that year. And what I was worried about was the extent to which we weren't keeping up with modern technology, you know, modern business practices. Uh, I think the only thing I would say here in 2021 is I'm even more convinced that this has to be a focus, uh, not an every two year focus or not an occasional focus, uh, but a, a, a continuous focus. That's really hard in a government bureaucracy. Uh, you know, it involves complex trade-offs, it involves complex perspectives, lots of people. You know, I look at issues like export control. Uh, we look at licensing issues across the board. And, and you want to make sure that all of that is working in service of encouraging the industry. Obviously, there are reasons for safety and security reasons why you might hold those back. But you want to keep those conditions as limited as you possibly can for as short a period of time as you can. Uh, and so, you know, uh, frankly, to shift to a, a business more familiar probably to all the folks you're talking with, uh, you know, when we, we heard, had a lot of folks talk to us over the last few years to say, hey, Kevin, you just have to slow this all down. You have to slow all of this uh, work down, especially in low Earth orbit. And, uh, you know, our, our view was that we looked very hard for data-driven approaches to regulation. We were going to regulate. Uh, you know, what would be the analytic basis upon which we do it? Uh, we worked with the FCC when they issued their orbital debris mitigation guidelines to say, okay, what, what pieces of this rule are supported what, by what kinds of evidence? Uh, and in a lot of cases, there was a lot of wishful thinking. There wasn't a lot of data rigorously collected to support that. And I would say that, uh, you know, regulation that's uninformed and just based on wishful thinking can really do tremendous damage to an industry. Uh, and so you have to think about it that way. I think you do. I'd like to ask you about your transition out of government of those those years you were at, at the Office of Space Commerce and to what you're doing now. What are some of the lessons that you've learned from that time that you're bringing forward into your business? So I, uh, I spent a lot of time, we certainly spent a lot of time at Commerce with literally hundreds of companies, uh, many of them at the early stages, but we certainly spent time with companies at all, at all levels. And it's one of the reasons I never liked the phrase new space and old space or whatever it was, because we were really thankful to see innovation coming out of the entirety of the U.S. space industry and frankly, many of our allies as well. Uh, and so I didn't like those labels that sort of boxed people around. I understand why people use them. I think since since I've come out of government, I'm doing a lot of advisory board work, a lot of work with early stage companies, uh, a lot of work in the space finance community. And uh, I continue to be linked with uh, my former boss, Secretary Ross, on, on the SPAC that he's running. I'm an executive assistant to him for space. And, uh, you know, on, on the one hand, uh, it's some of it is the basics that one has to do when one is an early stage company. And there's so many things to think about, the technology, uh, the financial models, the competitors, uh, the orbital debris mitigation strategy. I mean, one of the things we've been spending time in the finance communities is to say, when you invest in a company, you also need to be thinking and, and pressing the company on what their orbital debris mitigation strategy is, and frankly, their cybersecurity strategy. That's a whole other, other topic. Uh, because A, they have a lot of things to think about, and they might not pay as much attention to this part 
uh, but it's going to be your money that's at risk when you make that investment if they haven't thought through those things. So really excited to be working, continue to work in the industry. Uh, I'm doing a lot of uh, speaking, obviously, and, and discussion with folks about space commerce. Uh, and uh, uh, you, you may know that I, I testified in late July on on the orbital debris issue, but I started with uh, a bit of an exposition on the rise of the space economy. Uh, and my favorite phrase on it is that we see it still accelerating and diversifying uh, and well beyond traditional ways of thinking about space. So uh, having a lot of fun, still very, very busy, uh, still engaged very much on the issue of space commerce and, and what's gonna keep it moving forward. But you don't miss those 20 hour work days? <laughs> Um, I, maybe they're 19 now, you know, I have a little more control over my time. Uh, it, you know, it's those calls at 11 o'clock at night or three o'clock in the morning <laughs> that, that you don't miss, but, uh, no, still, still having a lot of fun and still very optimistic about what's going on. Yeah, that's, that's great. So you, you've transitioned well into another topic we wanted to talk about, which is this financing and space and SPACs and what it all means and what you see going forward. And I'll, I'll ask this in a bit of a provocative way to start and then let's get into it. But is there a space investment bubble right now? Yeah, I, I continue to get the boom or bust question. And uh, I, I actually don't think either. I think we're still going to head into much more substantial growth. And the reason I say that uh, is is not is you know this is very different from where we were 20 years ago. I remember 20 years ago, you know, and get I'll go back to the imagery example since I know it so well. The government would say, "Gee, if I invest in this particular company, it's the only company that does this, and they might go out of business." And at that point, I have to worry about on-orbit assets. I have to worry about perhaps a foreign acquisition. I have to worry about archival data that, by law, needs to be protected. We don't live in that world anymore. Uh, and the way I describe this is to say we're, we're really heading, space is very much heading into what we'll call a normal market. And in a normal market, people succeed, people fail, there's merger and acquisition, there's consolidation. And, and I see so much breadth and depth in the space economy right now uh, and backed up by substantial investment at all levels that you know, I'm, I'm not worried so much about that because if someone does sadly fail, and that will happen, then there'll be a normal market basis for them to be either absorbed into another company or, you know, the, again, the normal merger and acquisition approach that one would take in any other market. Uh, and so I'm not worried at this point about those kinds of things. I'm, I'm not worried about the, I don't think we're at a bubble uh, I think there'll be consolidation in certain of the market segments. I think it's very important to look in the different market segments, you know, for, for different trends. Uh, uh, but uh, on the finance side, I think what's interesting is that you'd have to look to the fact that there's been as much innovation on the finance side and continues to be innovation there. And SPACs are one example, not just from this industry, but from any industry. Um, you know, years ago, Private investors used to say, eh, gee, space is cool. There's 10 million bucks. You know, I might have an extra 10 million to spend. Space is cool. Take a shot at it. And it was a relatively uninformed conversation. We don't live in that world either anymore. You know, today we have a very sophisticated slate of investors that actually have a keen sense of what it means to be a successful space company, whether they're five people in a garage 
whether they've been in business two and a half years and have three customers, uh, or whether they are ready for the IPO, either based on a normal IPO event or a SPAC event or, or, or something like that. And so that's partly the case because the, the, the business model of space overall has changed. You know, we not only have the government now as a player, we have the government, the entrepreneurial ecosystem, if you will, and the private investment community that really help fuel a lot of innovation as uh, that we're seeing right now. What are these investors like today? Uh, if we were to walk into a room of investors and do our pitch, what are they excited about? What are they looking for? So, so bring your pitch deck, number one, because it's very important what's in your pitch deck. Uh, you know, we've had conversations with a number of, uh, of uh, early stage companies that like to think they can get away without a pitch deck. They can't. OK, uh, it's it's the currency of the realm. It's the price of entry these days, if you will. And, and so what they really care about, again, it's no longer just about the technology. It's no longer just about the idea. It's whether you can take an idea, build a competent, experienced team around that idea. Okay, understand the business of that idea, you know, who you're going to sell it to, what the price points are, again, within some bounds of certainty and uncertainty. I get, you know, no one has every answer to four decimal places, uh, who the competitors are, okay, and what the longer term vision is for, for the company. Are you going to lean on the government? Are you going to be really a commercial capability? And, and to revert back to what I said a minute ago, what we've really been able to see is Companies can really come into the market. The government has been a better buyer, whether it be NASA, or the Department of Defense, or, or even others. And what can happen today is the government can actually put some seed capital down. Uh, the government can actually spend, you know, let's call it a few million dollars on an idea that the government genuinely is interested in technically. Okay, so it's not a welfare program or anything like that. It's a, it's an idea that the government sees purposeful for its own purpose. The company can then take that investment and one presumes that when they when they make that investment that there's a technical backstopping of it. In other words, you're not you're going to propose something to the government, somebody will have looked at it technically and said, okay, yeah, this is this is something that's in the realm of the possible. Okay. They take that into the capital markets. And the capital markets can give every answer from Gee, that's interesting, but I think you'll be a government contractor for the next 20 years. Congratulations and good luck, and maybe that's a great business. Or we see some possibility that you could commercialize this based on the idea, based on the market that you can describe for that technology, how it fits into other commercial technologies. And they make an appropriate investment at that point. And maybe I give you five, maybe I give you 500K, maybe I give you $10 million or, or whatever it would be to test and expand that business. And so it provides the company, A, early resources to do the mission with the government resources and then expand for either additional services and commercialization. It's a very interesting ecosystem and, and it's unique here in the United States in terms of its breadth and depth. Uh, as I said, we see it. We see it in other places around the world. We see Europeans looking at it. We've been talking to our colleagues in Japan about it as well. But uh, it's very exciting to watch because it's got different places to think about risk in different ways 
uh, and it's also got ways to fund new ideas in different ways than the traditional state-based state space uh, investment model. And it's great. We really, I mean, we really see that happening uh, for, for, for us as well. When we talk to government, um, government investors and the potential there, they're not looking for one-offs and they're not looking for R&D that's just going to be R&D for a specific mission or one specific technology. They want to see a business case. And when they come to us and they put it even in these in the proposals that are out there, you see the RFPs and part of the RFP is explaining how you're going to translate what you're doing for this mission into a long term commercial activity. Uh, and, and uh, you know, a lot of that, I think, started in the U.S. It started with, you know, maybe some of the NASA and, and SpaceX and commercial crew and commercial cargo type of model. Uh, and it's it's being translated now. Uh, to to Europe and and Japan, as you say, um, I, I wonder, Kevin, what do you see then as the specific uh, missions, technologies, ecosystems that 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 you're most confident about in terms of um, of the space economy and what's going to be a viable commercial ecosystem? So, so I think we see it in a number of areas, and and again, I think it's it's more interesting to dive into the different verticals. Uh, you know, I'll run a panel. Uh, next month at the World Space Business Week on the future of launch. Uh, we know that there's a latest count, 165 companies worldwide that say they're in the small set launch business. It's not likely that that's going to continue to be the number that are there. Uh, and so, you know, how does that change? You know, does that revert to what I said a few minutes ago about consolidation and how it takes place? Uh, remote sensing has always been a gem, and I think it's illustrative uh, in how that transition, you know, in, in the remote sensing business, people used to come to me and say, hey, Kevin, they'd show you an image and they'd say, Kevin, this is so exciting that a farmer will want to buy it. You know, it's it's just so exciting because it's coming from space. And this is mostly space people talking to space people at this point, you know. And my first answer was always, have you ever met a farmer? You know, you, you, have you ever talked to a farmer about this? And the answer was typically no. And it won't surprise you that none of those people in, in the space business in any way, shape or form anymore. But that segment really matured when two things happened, when there was a specific focus in the industry on verticals like agriculture, like insurance, like the public sector, national security, uh, when there was a concentration around specific market verticals, and then when they brought the advanced technologies in to transition from pixels, if you will, to information and insights that people wanted. Uh, so that they didn't have to, you know, have a PhD in, in some field in order to other, understand the data. Uh, that's another area. Um, the, the moon, you know, the moon is no longer a frontier. Sometimes people get cranky with me when I say that. Uh, the moon is about to become a place of normal economic activity. And we see, again, when I talk about diversity, you know, these are some of the examples. Um, we see three clusters of activities heading to the moon. The first are the infrastructure people, the people that are going to put communications on the moon. Sometimes when I talk to investors, they think that the next thing that happens on the moon is the arrival of, of the next two astronauts, uh, you know, her and him. Uh, and in, the answer to that is, no, no, that's the, the last part of the next wave of the moon. And so the first crowd is the infrastructure crowd, PNT, uh, even SSA. You, you may have seen there, there, there may have been a, a lunar near miss as much as we're worried about Earth. There may have been a recent lunar near miss uh, between an Indian satellite and a NASA satellite. And so we, we, ought to, we ought to think about our experiences here on Earth when we think about the moon. 
The second cluster of people headed to the moon are, are what I'll call the explorers. You know, the people that are going to have the landers and the rovers and folks that are going to do some exploration and, and you know, understand the, the quality of the lunar surface and whether the water ice is high quality or it's, it's, or it's you know, got some, some challenges from a chemical perspective. And then the last group of people we see headed to the moon are people who are going to try to do things here, uh, try to do things on the moon that we're not doing as efficiently on Earth. And so one of the examples we see is data centers. You know, data centers consume an enormous amount of energy. They give off a lot of heat. Uh, there have been experiments trying to find new ways to cool off data centers. And there's at least one experiment of dropping one in the deep ocean. Uh, guess what? The deep ocean started to warm up, you know, because of the energy. That's not a good thing for lots of reasons. So one of the ideas we've heard about is the idea of dropping a data center in one of the harsh, cold craters on the moon uh, and, and to see if that will work any better. So, you know, in that example of, of the lunar economy, we see a whole bunch of examples. I'm excited about the whole, uh, the whole issue of satellite servicing. That will put a whole other spin on the question of reusability, uh, as we saw in the launch business. Uh, and so, you know, again, I, I could go on and on and on. Um, in the business that you're in, uh, you know, we, we have argued now for many years, you both know this, uh, that the work we're, we're all doing on improving our understanding of what's going on in the space environment is the early pathway to a brand new space safety industry that you all are part of. Uh, you know, people thought that the, the, that the discussion stops at improving conjunction analysis and conjunction warnings. That's not the start. That's not the end. That's the start. You know, because if people can do a better job of understanding where they are in space and how to stay out of everybody else's way and out of the way of junk, that becomes the basis for entirely new services in space safety. Uh, and so, again, we could go on and on. We could sort of, you know, talk about a, a variety of other segments where we're excited. I'll just mention one other, though, because uh, I think it's kind of interesting. Uh, when, when I was at Commerce, we would often see a lot of the capabilities that the good folks in the Department of Defense would see. So, you know, by parallel, uh, the Defense Innovation Unit, we'd see many of the same capabilities. But, but I often got to see things that were well beyond that. We got to see people that had some more exotic ideas with regard to food and space and space music and art and, and, and things like that. And we're seeing more and more of those kinds of folks thinking about uh, the, again, a, a more exotic set of services. And those have to be part of the space economy. You know, those, those are linked to the talent that we need. Uh, again, I've spoken about this many times uh, because we often think that we need a narrow set of very high-end scientific and engineering talent. We do need all of that talent to, to, to continue to explore space. But we also need people from a hundred other walks of life, so that food tastes better, and that we're entertained, and that we have, you know, uh, space medicine to protect our our frail bodies as we go through the harsh space environment. But also how we do better with medicine here on Earth. So that's a whole other community of folks we see thinking about space that that probably will never go to space, but they're actually going to enable uh, the next wave of spacefarers uh, to to do so successfully. So all, all very exciting. And that's what I cluster under the whole accelerating and diversifying theme that I talk about when I mention the space economy. I have to wonder who's going to be the first person to build an NFT in space or develop or 
I don't know what that means. Oh, so <laughs> there are folks, there are folks working on that. Well, we, oh, absolutely. We're working with uh, with a gentleman in uh, in Poland actually right now, a company called Copernic Space, and uh, and he's thinking about NFTs. The front end of which has to do with allowing greater accessibility by lots of people to space missions. Uh, and so they're about to announce, I think it's later this week, they're about to announce how you can acquire an NFT for pieces of one of the lunar landers, uh, you know, for some of the extra space on one of the lunar landers. Uh, and you, you can make use of that. It's the front end of a much more serious conversation about security in space and how we protect data coming to and from space and things like that. So uh, also talk with someone who is going to be doing uh, unique music NFTs in space, you know, creation of music protection. So um, those folks are right around the corner, as are probably many others that we're not even uh, not even aware of. And here I thought it was a silly question. I'm so glad I asked it. Um, no, <laughs> one, one thing I want to tease out, Kevin, is you mentioned investors are asking about debris mitigation, you know, techniques from new space operators. What are they? What is the value that they place on clean space? I'd love to tease out what because we're, we're having a hard time, right? You know, in a global commons or common pool resource, drawing the value out of it, of having clean space versus congested space. Have you had any discussions on monetizing clean space in, in orbit? Like what, what have you been talking about on that one? So, so I think we're, we're at the front end of being able to, to talk about how you think about space debris from an economics perspective. And I've actually been doing some work on this. You know, if I have to wait an extra week for my launch because I have to wait to get through a debris field. And, and sadly, I've heard a couple of anecdotes at least that suggest that even where we were a year ago was substantially better than where we are today. We've seen Tori Bruno talk about this. We've seen Peter Beck talk about it. Uh, and so, you know, people that are paying to launch uh, when they have to wait extra time to launch, that, that comes at a, at a cost. And so I think we're finally starting to think about this Obviously, we need to think about it from an international political and even philosophical level. We need to think about it from an international safety and you know the norms and practices, things like that. But I think folks are also starting to think about quantifying the economics associated with it. So let's go to industry, because uh, when I when I first got into commerce, you know, people would say, "Gee, industry doesn't give a darn about space debris and space safety and sustainability." And if you thought about that for five seconds, you'd realize how silly silly a comment that really is. Uh, because keeping space safe and sustainable, and maybe they don't use the word sustainable in the way we would use it, uh, is a pathway to continued innovation, continued revenue, continued profit, do, you, know, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so let's take that off the table. Um, industry has different views of what it means to do that. You know, uh, everybody has a, uh, a maneuverability plan. Everybody thinks their maneuverability plan is the best one that's possible. And so, you know, we have to work across industry uh, to get them to think about uh, more standardization, uh, more, more data sharing. And again, there's a couple of good examples where shared data that's done in a proprietary way absolutely gives owners better information about where they are relative to others. And, and that was the basis of what we affectionately call the open architecture data repository that was supposed to be 
constructed under under SPD three. We can we can come back to that in a minute. So I, I think people are recognizing there's an economic value here that needs to be paid attention to, in addition to all the other good reasons why we have to keep space uh, safe and sustainable. Uh, we've seen, you know this from your OneWeb example, that's a real example right now. That's not just an idea anymore. Uh, you know, the OneWeb example uh, that, that you're, uh, you're, you're seeing from the, the one failed uh, OneWeb satellite, you see people that are thinking about the future as they think about their engineering design and things like that. Because uh, obviously the, the easiest way to mitigate space debris is to not create new space debris. And there's some exciting engineering work going on uh, that can help with design. There's some engineering work that can help with, uh, you know, way, ways to design, to create capabilities that are safer than other ways. Uh, and that's the simplest way. It's not the only way, but it's the simplest and probably least costly way of doing that. Chris is smiling. Prevention. My grandmother always told me prevention is better than the cure. That's what it's all about. It's a very basic concept, but it, but there's a cost to it, obviously. And that's, that's the issue too. And there's, and to charity's point and the difficult thread that runs through all this, there's a, there's a cost that's hard to quantify and, and it's hard to know if it's been successful or not. So how do you know that that preventive uh, measure that you took actually was successful? Um, we talked a lot about the economics and as you were talking about the lunar aspect of this and about the servicing side of this, one part that you didn't touch on, which I know we all think about all the time based on all of our past jobs is the geopolitical aspect of it. Uh, the, both the cooperative side of it, how countries work together to make this happen, whether it is, uh, lunar resources and uh, utilizing the moon or working together on uh, partnering with servicing missions, all of which have a whole nother books and podcasts and discussions about the, um, the pluses and minuses, the difficulties with uh, you know, geopolitical issues, the, the positives in cooperation. Um, how do you see that playing out? I mean, do you see, are you, are you optimistic that, that we can get to a point that we can do all of that, those big steps you're talking about on the moon or taking these big steps in servicing and keep it focused on economics and the benefit for all? Or are we going to slide into this becoming a, uh, a, a, a difficult um, non-collaborative competition? Yeah, so I so I think you'll have both. You're you're going to continue to have competition as we've had, you know, for for many many years. Uh, if you read or write the history of the the U.S. Space Force, I just participated in a in a case study uh, review of that. Uh, you know, part of the reason for the creation of the Space Force was to respond to adversarial behavior uh, that we had seen in space that not only threatens our national security capabilities and those of our allies. Uh, but also potentially affects the, the the growth of space commerce as we've discussed it. And so there's both uh, the, the traditional national security mission that we see, but there's also this protection, uh, you know, freedom of navigation uh, kind of, of, of role as well uh, for, for the space force in space that, that relates to space commerce. That said, we've seen, uh, whether it be through the Artemis Accords, whether we see through, uh, you know, both bilateral conversations with our allies, uh, even like-minded partners, 
we see tremendous potential for cooperation uh, uh, in a variety of domains. Again, we, we enjoyed uh, qu quite a few conversations uh, and, and real work, frankly, with our, with our allies and like-minded partners while at Commerce, uh, because in many ways, countries want to understand how they can become part of the space economy. You know, I think, uh, I think COPUS is now the largest technical body in the United Nations uh, with, I think they just hit 100 countries, if I, if I remember something I heard recently. Uh, and you say, well, why is that? Okay, well, it's predominantly because countries want to understand, I believe, how they can take advantage of the space economy for growth, for talent development, for innovation, in addition to the wonderful things we're doing in terms of exploration. So I, I think the potential for cooperation here is quite strong. Um, I do worry a lot about the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative in, in the space arena uh, because I think it's partly designed to keep us and our interests out. Uh, and and uh, that's, not a, that's not a good thing at all. It keeps, you know, it holds our interests hostage. Uh, but uh, I, I'm very optimistic there's, there's plenty of room for cooperation. And, and while it was a slower example, uh, even the long-term sustainability guidelines, uh, you know, coming out of the UN, it took a long time to get to those 21 guidelines and this continued work in that area that is done and needs to be done. But, you know, we ultimately did see a broad set of principles that, that uh, just about everybody agreed to. So in this industry, I think we see growth potential for a number of reasons. And I'd like to pick apart and see if you have any thoughts on how diversity in the industry, not just the people, but bringing in outside information from adjacent industries is going to help support a growing space economy. Yeah, it's, it's hugely important. Uh, as I said, the talent issue and the diversity of talent, uh, you know, inside commerce, we had both the, we have both the Economic Development Agency and, and the Minority Business Development Administration. And, uh, you know, those organizations were really designed to bring lots of diverse talent to bear, MBDA especially, uh, to bring, bring a diverse set of communities into the space business. Uh, and again, it's, uh, it, it was a point of frustration at times when people would say to me, gee, Kevin, this is, uh, the space business is, is really too technical for my community and, and my, you know, the folks that we work with. And my answer is you're not thinking broadly enough about this. Uh, you know, every, uh, every community, every discipline can participate. And the more diverse thinking we get in this area, uh, the richer our experiences are going to be uh, in terms of economic growth and the progress that we make. I mean, it, I, I don't think this is a hard one, frankly. It's going to be essential, um, you know, to, to have that, that tied in. So I couldn't agree with you more. And, and it's essential if, you know, Chris, if, if you want to think about it this way, it's going to be essential because if you're going to hit those projections of one to three trillion dollars in the short in the short term, uh, you just need to do the math on how many people you're going to need. One of our worry points is that we're seeing some states, some of the more prominent space states are saying, we don't have enough people to fill the jobs that we have in the space economy. I mean, uh, we've been spending some time since le we did while we were in the government. We've also been spending some time since leaving government with communities that that literally have, have phoned and said, hey, hey Kevin, how do we play in this? You know, how do we get involved in this? And and my first answer is it's not just about being excited about space. I mean, that's that's needed, but it's not enough. 
And so we're talking to economic development agencies in a number of states that are not traditional space states, you know, because they're the starting point oftentimes to say, how do I energize people? How do I take a critical look at what this state has from a technical perspective, an industrial perspective, an academic perspective? What does this state, or you could frankly pick any jurisdiction. I mean, I've had this conversation overseas with, with other you know, ministers who are interested in their economies. Say, how do I find my competitive advantage as I dive into this thing called the space economy? Uh, and that's exciting. You know, it's exciting to see the, the lights come on with, with folks that haven't thought about this before. People are paying attention and people want to get involved. And it's not just the, 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 the cool factor, it's that there's something deeper to this as well, which is what I think we've spent this conversation uh, talking about. But there is still the, there is still the cool factor, and you see what has also gotten a lot of attention. Of course, are you know, the Branson flight on Galactic, the Bezos and Shatner flights on on Blue, and 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 more. What's coming up with uh, with SpaceX going around the moon and the you know to the station? I mean, there's there's a lot of that happening. So. Um, are you signed up yet or do you want to be signed up yet to take any of those flights? I'm not, I'm not signed up yet, but I'll, we'll get there. Are, are you, get, you, get inter- my, are you interested so, at some point? <laughs> so I, I, I guess, and like, that's my question. Like, are you interested? And also where does your interest stop? Like, like, okay, you got suborbital, you know, a couple minutes up above experience, microgravity, seeing the earth curvature atmosphere, you got ISS lunar, Mars, where, where, I mean, if, where do you want to go? If they're an interest, if they're an interesting seven day ride to a commercial space station, you know, that might be an interesting, uh, an interesting uh, excursion at some point in my life. Yeah. <laughs> it's coming. So it's it's definitely coming. Definitely coming. And, you know, it's interesting to see there's been, been at some level been a, a broad range of criticism uh, of those activities. And and I think, uh, with all due respect, the people that are that are thinking that way are missing the bigger point, uh, which is, uh, you know, space is so important. Uh, you know, you you both will know this, as as will many people who are listening to this. We have all lived through our day without space exercises. You know, so, so, so to us, shucks, you know, uh, why don't people pay more attention to how much space affects their lives every day? And, uh, you know, there's still some of that that goes on. But I really think that we're living, we're in a different place. I think we're at an inflection point. And, and, I, and the way I think of it is this. I think we're starting to see that space is going to be a platform, if not the platform, that's going to fuel a lot of the innovations that we expect and need uh, for the next decades to come. Okay. And when so I hear people talking about ag tech and health tech and clean tech and ed tech, um, I think space is going to play an outsized role in contributing to those. And uh, another example we see here is I, I like to cite uh, Tim Fernholtz's uh, headline at Quartz, which was all companies are space companies now. Uh, and what we're starting to see, and, and I'm really seeing this in, in a handful of examples, we're starting to see space become accessible to the point where companies that have nothing to do with space are saying, you know, I've got a couple of hundred K, I've got, you know, whatever the amount of money is, let's do an investment in space. And we're living in a market where companies, you know, some of them are called condo sats. You've seen loft orbital. There's a company in Bulgaria called Endurosat. There, there will be others. 
And, and their pitch is, you don't need to worry about launch. You don't need to worry about TT and C. You don't need to be worried about data rates to the earth. You pay us a certain amount of money, we'll fly your payload or we'll get the payload you need for the kinds of data you want. And we'll get you the data for you know some amount of money per month. You know, there's a there's a launch cost, if you will, a, a, you know, an on-orbit cost, and then there's a monthly cost. Um, and in, in the congressional testimony I gave in July, I liken this to somebody knocking on your door in about 1968 or 1972 and saying, Hey, I got this weird thing called desktop computing. Uh, I think it could transform your business. I really think that's where we are in space. And I think we have one gigantic data point. And, and sadly, we have this data point, but it's important that we have it. And it's the whole role that space played during the beginning of the COVID pandemic, uh, because we saw how there too, an outsized role in helping people monitor things from afar driving the precise delivery of goods and services, badly needed medical medicines and things like that, uh, creating capabilities like telemedicine and distance education. I know not everybody's still with distance education. Uh, and frankly, even the capability we're using at this minute, you know, to talk to one another. And so if you can't take stock of that as, an, as a really important contribution during a difficult time, based on investments made 10 years prior or 20 years prior, it shows you the potential of space to do a lot of the things that I'm talking about here. Yeah, as you, as you were saying that, I'm like, there it is, space as a service, it's here. Yeah, <laughs> and that's pretty it's, fun it to think about. Yeah, uh, yeah. Absolutely. So, Kevin, we uh, usually in our podcast we have a fun question at the end, and uh, it's more creative. It's not. It's not going to be mainstream question. Are you up? <laughs> are you up for the game? Are you yeah, good? yeah. Okay. You're not. You're not being graded, Kevin. Yeah, this these are the questions the that always get me nervous. But go ahead. <laughs> We're gonna try this one on to see if it actually is a good question. But uh, you will right. be uh, our guinea pig for this. So let's play. Drum roll. What is the market value of? And then we're gonna give you an item, and it's a space okay. type item, and you have to come up with what would the market value be? And would you regulate it or not? And if so, what kind of regulation would you apply? Okay, so- Oh my goodness. What is the market value of, have you read Dune? Do you know the movie Dune? I, I know the movie, I, I haven't okay. read the book for a um, long, I've, I've read it for a long time. Okay, actually. you see where I'm going here. Um, what is the market value of a pound of spice? A pound of spice yeah. would be, let's think. Oh, I, I, is this, this is in today's dollars? Sure, yeah, and you can compare it to like oil or something if you want, it's up to you. Uh, you know, I mean, call it $100 at this point. <laughs> do, do we need to regulate spice? We do need to regulate it consistent with our obligations under the Outer Space Treaty, but we like need that. to be careful in regulating it so that we don't, you know, essentially put people who are in the business out of existence. And those big ones. And again, we could talk a lot more about that. Uh, you know, again, there's, there's costs of regulation, both in terms of their economic impact, but also in terms of time, uh, because if uh, you know today we regulate things that we have a lot of experience with i mean I, this is an important point actually 
Uh, we regulate things that we know how to do. When the government allowed the commercialization of launch and remote sensing and, and communications, those were businesses they were very, very familiar with for literally decades. Now we have entrepreneurs knocking on our doors for which there's no necessary government advantage in the technology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, uh, you know, we, we propose this mission authorization uh, approach for broadly helping think about how to govern and authorize, uh, you know, th new things that were coming uh, from entrepreneurs in space. So again, the regulation costs can be in terms of time. Sometimes when we don't understand something the temptation inside of a large bureaucracy is to say, gee, we'll think about that for quite a while and we'll get back to you. Well, if you're not careful, that for a while becomes years and the people who are in that business are not in that business, you know, or worse, they're somewhere else. Uh, and so we have to think about that. So I, I, I turned your, your fun example into a, a serious lecture about regulation. I apologize. No, no, I think you revealed something really important is that Kevin O'Connell is going for mission authorization for mining spice. I like it. Exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> that's that's exactly right. This. That's the headline of this podcast, right? Kevin O'Connell right. wants to No, 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 that shouldn't spice. be the headline of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, I don't hey, know if I failed you. the game or not, by the way. Yes, there's no, I told you, you're not, there's not a pass or fail. Right? <laughs> we might need to treat that one. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Um, hey, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure. What a uh, what an interesting conversation as always with you. So uh, thanks a lot. Good to see both of you again. And yeah, uh, really enjoyed the, the chat this, this evening. Yeah, you as well, Kevin. And uh, I'm sure we'll see you somewhere and, you know, at some conference at some point. Absolutely. Maybe, uh, maybe Maui. I'll make sure to wear a white shirt and a tie. I, I would hope. To. I'll, I'll be on the lookout for you, by the way. <laughs> All right, Ken. All right. Take care. Take man. care. Thanks, Kevin. See ya. Good night.